Before the episode begins, I'd like to talk to you about health.tech, a unique conference happening at the International Congress Center in Munich on June 5 and 6, blending top-tier content and exclusive opportunities to meet leaders and founders from the health-tech ecosystem. The event is co-founded by EIT Health, Roche, and Bitten Brettles, the team that created one of the largest founders' festival of the same name, which Michelle Obama, Richard Branson, and Jessica Alba, just to name a few, attended. Their idea for health.tech was simple. Take the ingredients that made Bits and Brazil so successful and apply them to the health sector. The result is a unique conference where more than 3,500 participants representing payers, providers, patients, startups, investors, and corporates connect, share insights, and join forces to catalyze growth opportunities in health tech. Two days to think and act together on the future of health. I joined the event the last two years, and for 2024, I'm honored to be among the selection of thought leaders who act as ambassadors on behalf of health.tech. To secure your ticket, head over now to health.tech tickets and get 20% off with the code MATTHEWC20, that is M-A-T-H-I-E-U-C, in capital letters, underscore 20. I look forward to seeing you there. Now back to the episode. When a woman had a reconstruction following a mastectomy, the idea was to give her the look and the shape of natural breasts, but for herself as a woman, she could not feel things. And so uh, what we heard very passionately from these patients is that they want to feel normal again, that that normalcy lets them move on to be back to normal life. And so normal life means being able to hug your children and feel them on your chest. Welcome to Impulse, the podcast where we dive into the most exciting breakthroughs in healthcare of our time. In each episode, I sit down with some of the most brilliant minds that are using technology to rethink the way we care. Inspiring and passionate to tell you all about their innovation and how it will impact the lives of millions. My name is Matthew Chafford. I'm a biomedical engineer and medical technology enthusiast. And in this podcast, we take the pulse of this incredible field. Welcome to Impulse. So hello, Karen. Thanks a lot for being with us in this new episode of Impulse. I'm very glad that you accepted the invitation and I really look forward to our conversation. So there's a bunch of things that I wanted to mention as part of the introduction of the episode. The first is that we're going to talk about um, nerve repair, and this is the focus of your activities with within Axogen. I think it's, it's quite a fascinating topic um, from the physiological point of view which we had the chance uh, to discuss in episode six from the podcast with Jocelyn Block, who is doing uh, an incredible job with a research group in Switzerland, um, developing new therapies for people that are suffering from neurological disabilities. And uh, that includes paraplegics and they literally managed to get them to walk again. So I think that speaks to the potential of this field. And I'm really curious to learn more about the science behind Axogen and how you and your team are approaching nerve repair. Um, the second point I wanted to bring up is that we're recording this episode on March 8, 2023, which corresponds to the International Women's Day, where we celebrate the social, economic, cultural, and political achievements of women all over the world. So far, you are the fourth guest on the podcast, being a woman, um, over 17 episodes that have been published to date. So that's something that I'm fully um, aware of, and I have the call to go to get more to get more female guests on the show going forward um, to propose a more balanced content in that sense. Um, that being said, you have had quite an exceptional career um, in the field of medical and technology in the industry. So I hope that the women listening to our conversation will feel inspired by your journey and take away something very positive from the episode. Um, the last thing that I'd like to mention is a big thank you to Rope, uh, without whom this episode would not have been possible. So many greetings to him. And uh, with that, I'd like to propose you, Karen, to present yourself. Oh, thank you very much. And thank you for having me. Uh, again, I'm Karen Zatteray, and I'm the chairman, CEO, and president of Axigen. And Axigen is a company focused entirely in the area of helping patients who have damaged peripheral nerves. And it's an area that I have quite a bit of passion about. I think uh, it's an area that that has been vastly undiscovered and, and innovation has been minimal in the last 50 years in the area of peripheral nerve repair. 
and yet it affects so many people and and has the opportunity to change so many lives. So so I in some ways think of myself as a nerve evangelist, really out there making a, uh, increasing the awareness about the opportunity to do something uh, different and more impactful, so that patients can have a, a, a changed life going forward. So um, you spent, um, if we look at the, let's say, if we take the journey from the beginning after after college, so you spent 17 years working at Ethicon, which is part of J&J. So J&J is one, if not the most renowned company in the healthcare industry, um, occupying roles in manufacturing, product development, business development, marketing. So very big diversity of roles. And knowing that Ethicon is specialized in surgical technologies, so from simple sutures to surgical robots that we actually discussed in episode two with uh, someone called Lucien Blondel from Quantum Surgical, um, why did you decide to start your career in healthcare? And did you have a particular interest for those technologies used in the operational room from the beginning? You know, I didn't uh, know when I was a teenager that I would be moving into healthcare and healthcare innovation. I, I don't know that I had a clear vision for myself at all. And what I ended up doing is finding that I needed to um, continue to do things that I was passionate about. And uh, I was good in science. I was good in uh, math. Uh, so I ended up saying, well, I'm going to go into a science field. I picked chemical engineering and found that I had uh, little or no passion for making chemicals. <laughs> and so uh, at some point in my college uh, years, uh, actually fairly late in my college years, I said, oh my goodness, I have to change this in some way because this is not something that I'm excited about. I can certainly get a job, but it's not. it would be a job, not a, not a passion. And uh, I was introduced in college to biomedical engineering and found that to be just fascinating to me of how does the body work and how do all these systems work together to make sure that, uh, that you have a fully uh, functioning health. And, and that's something I think is a continuous learning. I think the science advances as you go along. So you're always learning in this area. And, uh, and it became something I was very excited to, to become more engaged with. And I joined uh, Johnson & Johnson because it was a well-respected company, because I thought I could learn a lot, and I did. And um, I have a lot of gratitude uh, for the education that I got at J&J and the opportunity to do uh, multiple functional things. So I uh, did um, work in, in manufacturing, as you said. I worked in marketing. I, I uh, did a, some time in sales. I worked uh, and ran a global business unit. I did business development. So that's the, the licensing and acquiring of businesses or companies to come into Johnson & Johnson. Uh, and so it was just a great, well-rounded opportunity to learn about uh, all of the key functions of an organization and how they fit together so that you can use all of this, uh, all of the power of the organization to really, again, focus on the patient and impact healthcare. Um, one of the, the things I think many of your listeners will recognize is that healthcare is immensely complex and highly regulated. And so it does take a team of people who have very different skill sets to be able to work together to make a, a new product or a new procedure possible. And uh, I really got a good understanding of what has to happen inside the company uh, at J&J, &J, which was, again, just great learning. And as you started your career, I think, so in the late 80s, what are some of the key advances in medical technology that you witnessed while you were working um, at J&J? There are a lot of things that changed. Uh, you know, it's funny. I think back, robotics was uh, at the very beginning stages. And I remember uh, people saying, who will ever pay this much money for a robot when a surgeon can do the job so much cheaper? Um, and, uh, and quite honestly, even the concept of minimally invasive surgery, I have been working in surgery long enough that there was a mantra originally of you needed a wide dissection, so big cuts <laughs> when you're doing surgery, so that you could have um, uh, a good visualization of what you were doing. And visualization is critical, right? The surgeon has to see clearly all the anatomical structures to be able to, uh, to do the procedure. But actually, if you think about minimally invasive surgery, in many cases with an endoscope or a camera, you get better visualization 
and less trauma to the overall tissue. And those were, as funny as they're so ingrained in what we do today, in, in the early days of when I was around in my career, those were new ideas. And so it just shows you that things progress. There are are deeply held beliefs about how uh, a particular technology or surgery should be done. And over time, you can create advancements that really do better patients' lives. And, uh, you know, if you look today at both the robotics and the minimally invasive surgery, we've vastly been able to cut down hospital stays uh, and patients feel so much better and have less uh, chronic conditions that come from all that tissue manipulation by just minimizing the surgery and standardizing the surgeries and with a robot creating very precise, deliberate movements that uh, allow procedures to be done in a, you know, a better way than they were then. No, that's, that's, that's true. Like, I mean, I have someone in my close um, surrounding who got uh, operated for a prostate tumor recently. And um, I think uh, he benefited from a surgery with the Da Vinci robot. And it was incredible mm-hmm. because I think he, he came to the hospital, like, I mean, the day afterwards he went out, um, no major you know, as you said, like sutures or like, it didn't seem like he had gone through such an operation. And, and of course the outcomes and the time to recover from those, from those events is also much, much quicker. Um, so you, you spent a substantial amount of time uh, working at J&J, a corporation, and you decide uh, afterwards to work as an independent consultant before moving to the startup Paxogen back in 2006, if I'm right. Um, so 17 years later, you're still uh, leading the company as the CEO and chairwoman of the board. Um, when you started working at um, what at Ethicon, so back in JNG, was your intent to learn and grow a set of skills that will, you would eventually able to apply, you know, and have a greater impact uh, based on that in a much smaller organization like Axogen? Like, why did you actually decide to to leave the corporate world uh, to work in a startup? Yeah, again, I find I gravitate towards the things that I have passion towards. And when I started at uh, Ethicon and J&J, I wanted to learn. And I would recommend anybody who's younger in their career, think about putting tools on your tool belt. You've got to really expand your skill sets. You have good learning from uh, your education, but now you've got to learn how to manage teams and how to make, how to influence, how to make work happen, how to integrate all of these complex functions. And, uh, and I learned that at uh, J&J. Um, I also spent, as, as I mentioned, a significant amount of time in business development where I was negotiating to buy innovative products in, uh, and bring them into the, uh, the, the commercial capacity of J&J, which is tremendous. And I found I developed a real passion for innovation. And so the, the really working on the things that were new and really changing the way healthcare was done and working then in marketing to think about how you develop markets and change surgical practices, again, for the better of patients. And uh, after a period of time, I decided, you know, most of that early work happens outside of larger companies. Those, those may grow as their own companies or they may get bought by the big companies. But the true innovation uh, often, not always, but often happens at uh, startup companies that really bring this, uh, this new opportunity forward, do the early development work, and, and sort of build the new concept in healthcare. And so I decided I wanted to leave J&J, which uh, is very unusual. J&J is a great company. And I know when I left, all my friends said, oh, my gosh, do you have a job? And I said, no, I'm going to go start something. And they, they thought I was nuts because <laughs> that's just not what typically uh, people do with a, you know, a big company background. But, <clears throat> but I thought it was the right thing for me. Uh, I did find that I went out and talked to venture capital groups about getting funding and looking at uh, bringing ideas out of research groups and university. And there was a lot of hesitancy to provide the funding. And uh, I was really trying to understand why. Unfortunately, I have a uh, very helpful and brilliant mentor who has given me advice over the years. And he, uh, and I finally went and said, I'm having this trouble. And, you know, what is it? Is it, I don't have the right background. Is it because I'm a woman? Is it because I'm not, you know, doing the right pitch? And he said, no, it's you're probably fine on all of those things. But the issue is people with a big company background often take the venture capital funding and they don't know how to operate and use that capital wisely to achieve their goals. 
And it, and he said, you're going to have to prove yourself. You're going to have to prove that you can function in this smaller environment where you have smaller, less resources. Um, but more importantly, that there is an ambiguity of decision-making. You don't have all the data that you need to make decisions because it's inherently new and you have to be able to make decisions and move forward and move and do so quickly. And you're going to have to prove that to the VCs. And so that's why I started the consulting business. I worked with VCs and, um, and started helping them in their smaller companies. And they became comfortable with my competencies uh, to be able to work in that smaller environment. I learned a lot of things about working in those smaller environments. It was actually helpful for me. And actually, one of the VCs I was working with said, hey, we're looking at this little company down in Florida that has an idea in nerve repair. Why don't you go down and talk to them? And uh, and all of a sudden, um, I met Axigen. <laughs> and so Axigen, I didn't found Axigen, but Axigen was a tiny team uh, working in a lab. And uh, they came up with an idea for repairing nerves when they're transected or cut. Uh, and a way to allow that regeneration to occur. And I can talk about that in a minute. And, uh, and it was really, to me, groundbreaking. I had actually looked at nerve repair in, uh, in my days at J&J as an opportunity to expand our product portfolio. And we decided we didn't have anything that met the need and couldn't find anything at uh, even university level that we thought met the need. But because I had looked at so many different technologies when I saw what uh, this small team at Axigen had in even early rat studies, I called my very understanding husband and said, I think we should move to Florida after that first dinner. And uh, and that surprised him a bit because that's not why uh, I thought I was going to, down, going to go down and consult with them. And instead, I quit consulting and joined Axigen and have been with them, as you said, 17 years ever since. So, uh, and how did uh, the original technology look like? So, what was uh, what were they able to demonstrate in animal models that you that you just mentioned, and what attracted you, or like you know how what potential did you see there? Well, the standard way that nerves are repaired is that they are uh, repaired using an autograft. So that's taking a nerve from somewhere else in the patient's body and moving it. So that's the gold standard, and that's traditionally what's been done. Yeah. And that obviously causes um, a deficit. <laughs> so you lose something to fix yeah. something that's more important to you. And, uh, and while that's been done for many years, uh, certainly there's room for improvement in that you don't necessarily want to lose, lose that function of that nerve as well as the risk of pain and other complications from that harvest site. And so people have tried for many years to solve that, but the problem has always been to be able to get nerve fibers all the way across the gap. This is all about signal capacity down to your end target. And the fewer fibers that make it across the gap to the distal target, the lower response that you have, whether it's sensory function or muscle movement. And, uh, and so most of the technologies that have been used had been round tubes. And those round tubes, uh, well, filled with a fibrin that allowed nerve fibers to grow a bit, but the fibrin is blood clot. It breaks down. Um, so the longer the gap is, the greater the risk that it'll break down before the fibers make it across that bridge. And so that was a great limiting uh, issue for that technology. And what Axigen had done was to say, well, can we do the same thing, but using human nerve? Can we take human nerve and that provides the little endoneural tubes that are the structure that support uh, regeneration? It provides certain biochemical cues that support regeneration. And can we use that um, to then create the, the same thing that an autograph does um, by providing support and allow regeneration across longer gaps? Great concept. But the cells within nerves are highly immunogenic. So how do you remove those cells so that you don't have an immune response and a rejection of that tissue? And nerves are tough to get the cells out of. They're, these tubes are very small. They're only uh, you know, microns in diameter. And so you have to fracture the cells and extract them without breaking up the inside structure of the nerve. And they developed a method for doing that. Um, they also identified that there are certain proteins that shut down regeneration in the same way that in uh, spinal cord regeneration, there's the glial scar that will shut down regeneration. Yeah. 
uh, that also exists in the peripheral nervous system. So they developed a, a way to selectively inactivate those proteins so that you remove the stop signs to regeneration. And it's those two concepts that really allowed the first allograft. So this is human tissue that's now decellularized and able to be transplanted in another another human uh, to be able to to exist. And their animal data was dramatically different than anything compared to those tubes. So I'd looked at lots of the hollow tubes. Uh, they all had this limiting factor. They were able to show that they could get regeneration across, across much longer gaps and uh, a high capacity of nerve fibers a- across much longer gaps than anything that I had seen before and very comparable to what you see with autographed. Um, maybe it's a dumb question, but then where do you source now the human nerves that you are harvesting to create these crafts? Yes. So they're sourced actually through the tissue donation process. It's the same uh, organ and tissue donation process. You can, uh, here in the United States, uh, in most licensed bureaus, you can check a box that says, I'm willing to be an organ and tissue donor, or you can let your loved ones know. And upon death, you can be considered for organ and tissue donation. Um, We don't source uh, from everywhere in the United States. There's actually quite a bit of, a single donor can affect a lot of patients uh, with nerve uh, because you are able to donate quite a bit of nerve for uh, each donation. And so we work with about 13, 14 recovery agencies here in the United States and, uh, and they recover the nerve tissue to our specifications. And then uh, once it goes through a pretty thorough medical review and release, uh, we then will process it to become advanced nerve graft. Wow. Um, so when you when you arrive in the when you arrived in the startup uh, having the the you know the product in still in the development stage like what were the first steps to you know bring it to commercialization and since when do you have it on the market because i mean as you mentioned these products take a lot of time for being developed uh, to be regulatory cleared um so i'm curious to learn how like what was the the path forward after you arrived there yeah. Um, well, they take a lot of things. Uh, they take a lot of detailed research studies. Uh, they take the scale up in manufacturing. They take the marketing work and commercialization side of things. And uh, all of those resources take money. And so <laughs> one of the first things you have to do is raise money to be able to uh, do that work. When I joined Oxygen, it was actually pre the first round of VC funding. So we closed uh, that first round of VC funding uh, that gave us the access to then start a lab because before that we were working in the university labs. Uh, we were able to to start our own uh, facility in an incubator, uh, do the lab work, do the scale up, um, start up a manufacturing site, and actually scale up and get ready for uh, for uh, full manufacturing of transplantable uh, tissue. Um, and then came, uh, so that was in 2006, 2007, we had our first clinical implants in late 2007. And then if you remember, there was this financial crisis that hit in 2008. 2008. <laughs> yeah. So that was uh, bad timing for us because we weren't really commercial yet. Um, we had started our manufacturing facility and what we found is our VC said, um, that they felt this recession was going to be long and difficult and, uh, and that they would not, provide any additional tranches of funding. And the way VC money works, for those of your listeners who aren't familiar, you typically get a promise for a bigger amount of money, but it's broken into tranches to hit certain milestones. So you hit a certain milestone and then the next money is released. Well, they decided that there would be no more tranches of money, regardless of what we did Mm -hmm. um, towards milestones, perfectly within their right. They were trying to conserve their funds to help their most promising companies get to market, but that left us uh, as pre-commercial, not in the category that was going to get funded. So unfortunately, we spent the next three years uh, pretty cash constrained, but we still did some remarkable things in the next three years while I kept raising money enough to keep us alive yeah. and to make payroll. Uh, we completed out some clinical work. Uh, we did some regulatory submissions, um, worked out a pathway towards uh, being both a tissue in the U.S. as well as transitioning to a biologic with the FDA here in the in the U.S. Uh, and we brought in two additional products because we realized that uh, while we had a great product in advanced nerve graft, that was only one problem that surgeons faced. And if we really wanted to be a solution provider, uh, we needed to help them in a broader way. 
And so uh, a vance is used when a nerve is cut and a nerve has a gap between the two nerve ends. Different than other types of tissue, they can't pull the nerve ends together. Um, We added Axigard connector, which is when a nerve is cut, but the nerve ends can be approximated without uh, any tension on the nerve. And an example is like a a knife injury, a kitchen Mm -hmm. knife injury Mm -hmm. uh, that's repaired immediately. That's a great application for Axigard nerve connector. Uh, so, So that helps when there is no gap. And then we added Axigard nerve protector. Uh, There are times when nerves are damaged, but they're not actually fully transected. So think of a very, uh, think of when a nerve is hit uh, and trapped between whatever object hits the skin and a bone. It has a deep contusion. Um, The surrounding tissue is also damaged. And you want to protect the nerve uh, from soft tissue attachments or things that may tether it from movement in the future. Uh, The worst outcome, especially here in your fingers, is if the nerve attaches, uh, if the the nerve ends up with soft tissue attachments to a a tendon, which is anatomically right next door, Mm -hmm. uh, every time you try and move your finger, it yanks on the nerve. And it turns out that when you yank on a nerve, it hurts. And so that is the cause of the pain. It's not actually the tendon that hurts. It's the nerve that's getting pulled uh, can cause that pain. And so a way to protect that nerve from soft tissue attachments, from um, things like plates or screws that are placed in uh, other parts of the, remember this is trauma, so all kinds of other things are going on at the same time. Uh, so maybe a bone or a tendon or other injur- uh, injuries in the, uh, in the same in, uh, episode. Uh, you need Axigard protector to protect it and create a sleeve around the nerve, keep these the surrounding tissue up and off of the nerve. And we added those into our portfolio as well. Um, moving a little forward, we actually ended up uh, in 2011 uh, finding a company that had been a public company, was a public company, uh, had had products in the marketplace, had had... Uh, patent infringement, or they believed they had patent infringement, they'd sued and ultimately won through awards and settlements. Uh, they had money, uh, but through that, they'd also outlicensed some of their intellectual property. So they really didn't have products, but they had cash. <laughs> we had products, but no cash. <laughs> so we decided it would be good if we married and we did what's called a reverse merger. Uh, so we uh, were acquired essentially by this uh, public entity, but then took them over and became Axigen now as a public company. Uh, that gave us some funding for a little while. It was uh, uh, a penny stock, if you're familiar with those. Uh, so it, they don't freely trade. So we uplisted to NASDAQ in 2013 and then got a significant amount of capital in 2015. So the simple answer is... Uh, you ask, when did we fully commercialize? Well, our first clinical implants were in 2007. We had enough money to completely expand our commercial team in 2015. Wow. So there was a little bit of time that went by <laughs> to get up to that point. Well, yeah, that's that's crazy. I mean, it must take a lot of patience to you know to see the end of the tunnel. But that's that's a that's a great story. Thank you, thank you for sharing that. Um, I was wondering, and that's m- mostly related to maybe some of the use cases that you have with your products. But what I was wondering about is when you have, for example, you know, phantom phantom pain. If someone has you know is amputated, and you have just the nerve endings, uh, you know, there sending sometimes the wrong signals, which creates this sense of pain, although the limb is not there anymore. Um, can those, can your solutions, you know, provide uh, an answer to that problem? And how does that work? Yeah, really, really great question. And one we've become much more aware of in the last um, really 10 years. I think there was a poor, this is one of those areas that's a great advancement in healthcare. And that is the recognition that chronic pain, not all chronic pain, but selected chronic pain Uh, is actually due to a physical anomaly of the nerve uh, and that that can be changed in the experience of the patient by removing that bad section of the nerve and then managing that nerve so that you give it something productive to do and so that it doesn't reoccur. So what actually happens in that case in an amputation is, of course, the nerves and many other structures are cut. Um, Those raw ends of the nerve sprout out 
trying to find a distal target and they get tangled up into a ball of scar and nerve fibers that's called a neuroma. And those nerve fibers short out against each other and send aberrant signals back to the brain. And that's what you interpret as pain. And so that amputee that says my foot hurts, but I don't have a foot. So how can my foot hurt? It is a neuroma at the end of those nerves. So yes, now today, if you fast forward to where we are, this is one of the most exciting areas in nerve repair uh, is starting to understand that we can dramatically change uh, the, the lives of these patients with chronic pain by doing a surgical treatment to remove the bad section of the nerve. And there are a number of techniques that are available. Um, one would be at the time of the amputation, they take these major nerves and they either, we have a new product called Axigard Nerve Cap. You either cap it, so that's a, um, a it's essentially a way to give the nerve fibers a little bit of room to grow, stay linear instead of getting tangled up in a ball, uh, and to peter out and stop growing. Um, or they do uh, different types of techniques where they take those nerves, often using advanced nerve graft because they need to extend the length, and they take it into uh, nerves in other muscles. Uh, this is actually all outputs of research from looking at the bioelectric uh, prosthetic devices where they needed to to create uh, signaling for those bioprosthetic uh, devices. And they found that worked, but it also dramatically cut down the phantom limb pain. Like, wow, there's a discovery. Uh, so now they do, even if they're not going to get a bioprosthetic device, they'll do that procedure in many of these amputees at the time of the amputation to prevent the this formation of that neuroma. Um, so we've added products. Um, we also work in this area of TMR, trying to help them. That's the the, the planting the nerves in the muscle. It's a technique uh, to help prevent those neuromas. And uh, we think there's a great opportunity for patients who are in this horrible uh, cascade of trying to find someone to help solve their pain. They end up the traditional method, of course, in pain management is to is to try and treat the symptoms. Uh, we're suggesting let's go in and, and treat the cause. And then you won't have to be on increasing medications to manage the symptoms over time and uh, trying to help patients be good stewards for their own healthcare to, to go find that sur the surgeon that does the surgical treatment of pain uh, rather than just pain management. And I was wondering, so we just talked about one use case. What, what are the other, let's say, areas of indication, basically? Yeah, it's... Um, Nerves are interesting because they're all over the body. They're interesting in many ways. Obviously, I'm fascinated by nerves, but, <laughs> but uh, they're all over the body and they affect essentially all the functions that we have uh, in the body. So every muscle movement is a signal from the brain cascading through the central nervous system out through the peripheral nervous system to tell that muscle to move. Every sensation that you have, temperature, vibration, even your proprioception so that you know spatially where you are with relative to uh, things around you so you don't bump into things, all of those are signals that are carried on a nerve. And so uh, so one of our interesting challenges have been where do we begin because there's so many places that nerves are affected by surgery. Um, every surgical procedure that happens will uh, have the risk and in many cases the, the, the intent to cut some nerves to access what you need to get to uh, in that surgical procedure. And, uh, and so we think there's a greater opportunity to provide awareness to that and to manage those nerves both, uh, both pre and post-operatively. Uh, so having said that, we had to narrow our focus on uh, on where we could affect change the, the greatest and initially. And so we focused initially on traumatic injuries. So these are things that present into the emergency department and are then referred into the OR to have a, a repair of the nerves. Um, there's a lot of different types of traumatic nerve injuries. They range, you know, quite honestly, uh, everything from, uh, you know, like I said, the kitchen knife injury to power tools to uh, falling through uh, plate glass. All of those are the types of things where you're going to see uh, a likelihood of a nerve injury. Um, and they're typically repaired by a hand surgeon or a plastic surgery, a surgeon relatively quickly from the traumatic injury. Sometimes, uh, well, they're not truly an emergency, um, sometimes they refer them immediately into the operating room. So you go in an emergency department and an hour later you're in the operating room and they <laughs> fix the nerve and you go home. Uh, other times they tell you to come back 
um, and and sometimes as much as in three months later, uh, depending on what the injury type is. For example, on gunshot wounds, uh, a gunshot, a bullet that goes through a nerve actually pushes the nerve until it stretches and breaks. So if you saw this injury in slow motion, you would see it push, 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 push. So there's yeah, like a very a string long, breaking. Yes. So it doesn't cut like a knife. It pushes until it tears through. And so it creates a very long zone of injury. And to make sure that they've gotten into healthy tissue, they typically delay the repair uh, so that they can tell where the nerves have been injured completely. And, uh, and so that in that case, they might tell you to come back in three months. Most are repaired pretty urgently. Um, we also then said, well, it's not just in trauma, nerves are injured. Uh, where else can we expand into? And conceptually, if you think about the morbidities associated with any surgical tumor removal, many of the complications of those procedures are actually nerve injuries uh, because in accessing and getting a clean margin on that tumor, they have to cut nerves. And so when you have a, a patient who is talking about facial paralysis or loss of sensation in the face from a tumor that's removed, um, it's not because they had the tumor that they have those complications. It's because in extracting the tumor, a nerve was damaged. And so we started working in oral and maxillofacial uh, procedures when mandible reconstruction is done. Um, those same nerves are also injured sometimes in dental procedures, not to scare everybody to go to the dentist, but <laughs> very small percentage uh, in either taking wisdom teeth out or putting in dental implants. They accidentally transect the nerve that runs in the base of the jaw. And in that case, the patient calls the next day and says, how come the anesthesia didn't wear off? And of course, the anesthesia has worn off. It's They don't feel anything because the nerve has been transected. But those are very repairable. Uh, they need to see a specially trained microsurgical oral maxillofacial surgeon, but they can fix those. And we actually see quite um, promising results with those with those types of procedures. Uh, we expanded into an interesting area, partly, again, I told you I go where my passion is, and uh, breast cancer runs in my family. I had family members come and ask me, um, when will I get sensation in my breasts? I've had them reconstructed. I had a mastectomy. I've had them reconstructed. When does the sensation come back? And I thought, huh, I should know this, <laughs> but I don't. <laughs> and so I uh, called some of my surgical friends and found out they don't have sensation because they don't they don't hook up the nerves. They, they that's not been a traditional part of a reconstruction. When a woman had a reconstruction following a mastectomy, the idea was to give her the look and the shape of natural breasts, but for herself as a woman, she could not feel things. And so uh, what we heard very passionately from these patients is that they want to feel normal again, that that normalcy lets them move on to be back to normal life. And so normal life means being able to hug your children and feel them on your chest or to be able to go swimming and feel the sense of the water or and to know that you still have your swimsuit on because people talked about that. If they dive into the water, <laughs> if you have no sensation, you do not know if you are still wearing your clothes or not. And then some embarrassing <laughs> moments can come from that. Uh, so all of those things were topics of conversation among women but they weren't conversations that they were comfortable to freely share with very often their male surgeons. And so what we found was an interesting dichotomy of female surgeons heard this regularly from their patients, but male surgeons didn't. So male surgeons didn't know that there was a problem because the, the, the patients weren't able to emote or explain what, what that meant to them. And so we've started uh, raising awareness about the opportunity to provide sensation during the reconstruction um, trying to arm uh, women to be able to ask the question. First of all, decide, is it important to you? It may not be important. If it's not important, then you've made a good choice for yourself. But if it is important, ask your surgeon about it and be prepared to talk about what you need as an outcome of the procedure and then give your surgeon the feedback as you get sensation back. And that has uh, developed into the resensation technique, which we provide uh, today for uh, women uh, who have what's called a deep flap. It's a, essentially the tummy tuck that they use to create a breast or, or both breasts uh, following a mastectomy. And we're expanding into selected patients who have implant-based procedures as well. And so we are excited that this has a, a, been a real benefit to women who, are in, uh, who have uh, a mastectomy, again, either because they have cancer or prophylactically uh, because they're concerned about cancer. 
And, uh, and then you also mentioned the surgical treatment of pain, which is our current area of significant growth. So those are the current areas we focus on. But gosh, we have a list of many, many, many things to expand to. And it's always a tough choice to say, well, we can't do everything at once, but gosh, what's next? And that would be actually the, the direction of my next question, like, you know, from your perspective and in light of all the rapid progress that's happening, you know, across many areas of medical technology beyond nerve repair, what, what are the evolutions that we might foresee in nerve repair in the near future? Or what do you hope for? You know, I, I look at nerve repair and I draw the analogy of the spine market. If you go back 40 years ago, um, if you had a spine problem, they took bone out of your hip and they uh, placed that to allow you to have a spinal fusion. And they used an external fixation system because you had this very often you were kept in the hospital for an extended period of time until your bones fused in your back. And um, not a great procedure, not great outcomes, but a choice and an opportunity for those patients who had severe back pain. And if you fast forward to today, we probably have uh, 400 companies that do things, obviously several big ones and a lot of small ones doing innovative things in spine surgery. Um, it's expanded into a whole bunch of therapeutic options, including uh, rarely taking bone out of a hip and rarely using external fixation. Uh, there's a lot of other ways to do these procedures that have a better impact on the patient than, uh, than what it was 40 years ago. Well, I, if I fast forward, I think we're in the beginning cycles of that for peripheral nerve. Uh, I think we have outstanding technologies today, but I think this technology and innovation will continue to, to change and actually accelerate over the next uh, 30 years so that if I think 30 years ahead, we'll be completely different than we are today. Uh, I think first the recognition of nerves as a structure that need to be, again, managed and, uh, and repaired will be much higher than it is today. I think imaging technologies will start, and they already are starting to catch up. So you'll be able to image nerves. That's one of the challenges today is that you can visually see the nerve in the surgical field, but you can't pre-image the nerve in most in most cases to know anatomically where they are. And while there's a lot of consistency, there is still individual variability so that you may transect a nerve and not realize it in the procedure, and that can have consequences for that patient. Um, I'd also like to be able to see from an imaging standpoint to see nerves heal in the same way that you can see in an x-ray that a bone is healing. And again, that technology is starting, uh, but it will greatly help so that uh, surgeons will not have to wait for full clinical healing uh, to understand whether the repair worked or whether revision is needed. Uh, and nerves heal very slowly. Uh, so that wait can be months and years. And, uh, and in fact, you lose your window of opportunity to do a repeat or revision procedure in some cases. So getting nerves repaired quickly is very important. Big message for everybody online who may have a loved one with a nerve injury, seek a specialist quickly uh, because you need to make sure you get that intervention done in a, in a quick way uh, so you allow time for the healing. Um, in terms of advances in technologies, I think there's a, a whole bunch of things people are already doing. I think um, that you're going to see a combination of bioactives combined and therapeutics combined uh, with things like advanced nerve graft and other technologies, uh, because there's still opportunities to make nerves heal more completely. So again, getting more nerve fibers moving forward um, and uh, to be able to potentially steer them to the right target uh, so that it helps the brain uh, to have a very clean idea. Again, if you think about all of these nerve fibers, if they all hook up differently, the brain has to sort that out <laughs> to figure out the inputs that it's getting. And so to the extent that we can help the brain have a more orderly set of inputs, uh, it will respond with a, a, a sense of a higher recovery rate. And so all of those are things, maximizing the number of nerve fibers, speeding up the nerve fibers, uh, and improving and steering them so that they uh, provide the expected inputs back into the brain are all opportunities to improve nerve repair. And do you think we'll be able to grow the grafts artificially as well at some point? Uh, I think we'll continue to advance to do that. Um, I think when you get into very small structures like this, I am not personally optimistic that it's going to be a, a, a polymeric response, but I think there are things you could still do with proteins. Um, so it would still be a, 
you know, biologic type of product um, in the road uh, in the same way that we think about, can you create organs, you know, rather than doing organ donation, can you create nerves? It, it's, this, it's, you know, not as com- complex, obviously, as a heart, but at the same level of science that it'll take to be able to do that. That's that's very inspiring. Um, so we've covered a lot of elements you you shared with us your journey, your professional journey, how or your time when you were at J and J, why you decided to change, go to Exogen, and took us through yeah the the adventure that it's been, and uh, it's been quite a journey. We're coming towards the end of the episode. I'm conscious of time, and there's always a couple of recurring questions that I ask to every guest on the show. The first one is about you know what resources would you recommend us to check out in order to know more about the field in which we evolve, be it books, publications, anything that's publicly accessible, basically? Um, well, as a as a patient, I would recommend, we, we have a couple of educational websites that I think are very helpful for patients or, or even just to help your loved ones uh, to understand the nerve function and, again, have that informed conversation with a healthcare provider. And so resensation.com is the website that will provide information for women who have a mastectomy and are interested in breast reconstruction with sensation. Uh, rethinkpain.com is the website uh, explaining this concept of how nerves can be a cause of chronic pain and to help patients think about uh, is that something that is affecting themselves. And uh, and we actually, in that case, have a uh, find a nerve surgeon. Uh, and there's also a nurse case manager who can uh, help them sort of triage their own care pathway uh, to understand whether they uh, can be a benefit from the surgical treatment pain. And obviously, they need to see a, a healthcare provider to get that final answer, but it helps them be advocates for their own health. Uh, in terms of um, data out there, there's actually a large number of peer-reviewed clinical papers on the Oxygen portfolio. We have over 200 clear, uh, peer-reviewed clinical papers uh, that have been published. Uh, we, we believe very deeply in providing uh, clinical data to surgeons so that they provide the best possible decisions for their, for their patients. Um, so any of those are good resources. Probably the best is uh, just actually published in December in PRS, and it's a meta-analysis of nerve repair. And uh, it is a pretty comprehensive review of all of the data comparing autographs, allographs, and these hollow tube conduits, and uh, shows uh, that statistically a uh, uh, advanced nerve graft is uh, equivalent to an autograft in both short gaps, long gaps, sensory nerves, motor nerves. So across the gamut of types of injuries. And of course, both are, both are better than those hollow tube conduits that we talked about. So it's a good comprehensive data set for those people who like to dive into a little bit more of the science and literature. Great. I'll, I'll put the, the links into the show notes. Could you share with us an anecdote from your work, which made you realize the impact that you were having on patients' lives? There are a lot of those. I think there is nothing better in healthcare than actually hearing from patients themselves uh, as to what their condition is and how you have helped to affect their life with the technology that you're developing. And for me, um, probably one of the most inspirational is a patient named Shirley, uh, who in the early days as we were looking at uh, neuromas and neuroma pain, really was desperate to solve uh, what she considered to be foot pain. And one of the problems with nerves is uh, it may not be, the injury to the nerve may not be in the foot. It may be a nerve that goes to the foot. And that was the case for Shirley. Um, She became, she was a professional, was having so much difficulty after a number of years with this pain that she actually went to an orthopedic surgeon and asked him to amputate her foot because she was desperate to stop the pain and she did not like having to take opioids because it, it really, for all of us, there's the, the risk of addiction, but also it makes it very difficult to even work and function, drive, any of those basic life activities. And so her solution was she wanted her foot amputated and, he, and this surgeon said, well, um, uh, he's actually a podiatrist, I'll, I'll clarify, uh, who does a lot of lower extremity pain and he said, uh, let me look at this thing we've been looking at, and maybe it's a neuroma. 
and we'll see if we can find that. And they did. They found three neuromas from a prior surgery that she'd had that had caused um, some entrapment of the nerves that had resulted in neuromas. And um, they removed the neuromas. And she describes when she woke up from that surgery, it's like someone had flipped on the lights, that she had lived in this fog of pain for seven or eight years at that point. And even, you know, you wake up from surgery, you still kind of hurt because you just had surgery. And she said that was so minor compared to the chronic pain that she had. It was like the lights came on and it changed her life. That's incredible. And it was her story that made me realize we have to, this is a very nascent area. It's, it needs a lot of definition, but we need to get involved as well uh, because this will be a way to really impact lives. Oh, that's that's great. Thank, thank you so much for sharing that. Um, at every episode, so I really get inspired by the guests that I have the chance to to receive on the show, and you are no exception to it. Um, there are certainly other figures that you look up to yourself, um, also advancing medical progress. If you would recommend one of them as potential guests for the podcast, um, who would they be and what would you recommend them? Well, I, I think there are a lot of people who continue to move healthcare forward. And uh, I celebrate them as heroes in, in changing all of our lives. Uh, someday I'll be their patient too. I so far have been uh, happy and healthy, but uh, I'm, I'm really uh, happy with the advances that I've seen in healthcare. I'm not going to put anybody on the spot right this second. I'll, I'll tell you after the show a couple names that I think of people that I think have really moved the needle. Um, but I, I'm really, uh, to me, I celebrate these innovations as continuing to advance healthcare uh, for all patients, but, you know, selfishly, maybe for me too, at some point. How can we get in touch with you, Karen, um, over LinkedIn per email for those who would like to reach out to you? Yeah, I'm um, I'm on LinkedIn, so that's probably the best way to reach out to me. Um, it's Karen Zadere, Z-A-D-E-R-E-J, tough last name to spell. Um, but uh, happy to hear people. And then also the oxygeninc.com website uh, is a good way to get information about uh, both nerve repair in general and, uh, and the company. Is there anything you'd like to add before we wrap up? No, I, I think the only thing, again, and I know I said this earlier, I'm sometimes a nerve evangelist. Um, I found I presented at lots of conferences and I'd get a line of people coming to talk to me. And uh, I thought, oh, they're so interested in oxygen. And it would all be, you know, my wife fell down the steps and she's had this pain in her hand. And do you think it could be a nerve injury? So nerve injuries impact us or our family members actually quite frequently. And you may just not realize it. So I would ask everybody to think about um, it could be a nerve injury. And if so, be an advocate for your loved one's health. Help them find someone who can help treat that nerve injury. They don't need to live with that pain or loss of function. Thank you so much, Karen, for your time and for the opportunity. Thank you. Thank you for listening and making it all the way to the end of this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. All the notes are available in the episode description. If you liked it, don't hesitate to share it with your relatives, friends or colleagues and subscribe to the podcast. I would be extremely grateful if you could leave a five-star review on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. It really helps Impulse move up in the rankings. Feel free to reach out to me by email or through LinkedIn if you want to share your feedback, questions or suggest potential guests. Thanks a lot and see you in the next one.